will be reading Luke 4, verse um, 16 through 21. Isa, ona pe gamber yeshayanan kitapa veredi, kitapa acharak susuzlerin yazlı oldru yeri buldu. Rabin ruhu özredin dedir, çünkü o beni yoksullara müjdeyi iletmek için mesetti. Tuksaklara sebesti, bırakılacaklarını, köylere gözlerinin açılacağını duruyumak için. Ezilenleri özgürlere kavuşturmak ve Rabin Lütuf yılını ilan etmek için ben gördüdü. Sonra kitap kapatı. Gör, Görevli gerip verip ortadu. Havradakilerin hepsi dikkatli ona bakıyordu. İsa, dinlediğiniz bu yazı bugün yere gelmiştir diye konuşmaya başladı. He went to Nazareth, we had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to introduce you to a friend of mine, Sarah. Uh, I met her when she was a 22-year-old senior at NYU. Uh, She grew up in Texas in some suburb outside of Dallas and had these dreams of the bright lights of Broadway. And then uh, she got in, uh, a theater major at her dream school in her dream city. And so she arrived wide-eyed with this head full of dreams and began living toward that vision of her preferred future. She also got involved in a church community that was equally widening her eyes to Jesus. And she decided to begin getting together with this one friend of hers to read the Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the the four books in the Bible that comprise uh, Jesus' life here on the earth. And, And they made this simple plan. Why don't we read the Gospels, just a chapter a day, but read them in this way, where we actually intend to follow Jesus. Like we take him seriously on the things that he's saying and the places that he's going, and we try to put it into practice. Now that simple experiment messed up her life in all of the very best ways, but it started here. Uh, Sarah could not shake the fact that Jesus, in scene after scene, is sharing meals with the poor, and she almost never was. So how could she call herself a disciple of this rabbi if she had found a way of following him that avoided the very environments that he seemed to always be taking his disciples? Do you see the disconnect there? 
So she made this simple decision. Uh, there was a group of houseless folks that were always sitting on the sidewalk at the same corner just off the NYU campus. And so instead of eating her lunch with her friends each day, she would take her lunch and she began to sit with this group of people. And they went from uh, just faces, uh, distant characters in her every day to uh, people whose names she knew and stories she knew. And they got to know her name and her story as well. And that turned out to be a slippery slope of the very best kind. So we are continuing on in this vision series, A House of Prayer for All Nations, which is all about the interconnected nature of prayer and justice. Now, part one of the series was all about prayer. And as a whole church, we are endeavoring to unite ourselves around this daily prayer rhythm of morning, midday, and evening prayer. I was out last week uh, preaching on that very daily prayer rhythm at the 24-7 International Gathering in Northern Ireland, where what started at Bridgetown here a few months ago was then shared with over 120 nations that were represented there and is going out to the global church. Just pretty fun, yes? Pretty fun. So some of you are absolutely loving this daily prayer rhythm. Others of you are really struggling with it, and, and some probably have never even started. So I just want to say the, this. Here's the invitation. Just start somewhere. Because please hear me on this. Prayer is not about performance. It is about relationship. And prayer is not about rigorous commitment, it is about love. So just start somewhere and determine not to grade yourself or evaluate yourself on how you're doing. Just trust that what you can bring to God is plenty for him to work with. Now, part two of this series moves from prayer to being all about justice. Justice, the Jesus way that's born from prayer and is sustained by prayer. Last week, Hakeem did a brilliant job laying a foundation for justice for us through the person of Jesus. And today, we're gonna return to many of those very same places in the scriptures to look at an often overlooked but undeniable biblical theme that I'm calling the imperative of proximity. So you will need a Bible today. Go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter three. I'm gonna meet you there in just a second and get ready to do some flipping. This is gonna be one of those days. So I'm gonna give you this theme in five chapters. Exodus, Sadaqah, Prophets, Jesus, and church. That's a map of where we're headed. And before we begin, you do need to know right up front that I'm not even gonna try to make this sexy for you. I, I don't have a whole lot of jokes and fun anecdotes woven in there today because I'm trying to take very seriously my responsibility to lay a firm biblical foundation when it comes to justice and the very questions that our culture is wrestling with right now, a firm biblical foundation for us to stand on together as we as a community engage those same questions. So we are just going to go for it. Are you in? I love the enthusiasm because you are stuck in the room for the next few minutes or so, so it's late for you to not be in. But here we go, chapter one, Exodus. Let's look at Exodus chapter three. I'm gonna begin in verse seven. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue. Now there's two themes that are revealed right here in this kind of opening statement that begins all the wild adventure that is the Exodus journey. The first one is this, that God hears the cry of injustice. There's a really interesting detail right at the beginning of the biblical story in, in Cain and Abel in Genesis. 
uh, right after uh, Cain murders Abel, that is the first act of injustice in recorded history. So he kills Abel so that he won't have to deal with him anymore. Injustice lowers the volume of the cry of the oppressed in the ear of people. But then the voice of God breaks into the story at that very moment saying this, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So injustice lowers the volume of the cry of the oppressed in human ears, but it amplifies the volume of the cry of the oppressed in the ear of God. That's a theme that continues to uh, play out to be true as the biblical story moves forward, that God takes offense at injustice. It is a distortion of his image, of the imago Dei that he put into people at the very beginning. Here's the second theme that's revealed. God chooses the marginalized. You know, when we want to affect change, we usually start with powerful people, prestigious people, influential people. That's who we've got to get on board to see something real happen, right? But when God wanted to affect the most real change, the most overwhelming change, he passes over, consistently passes over the more obvious candidates, Egypt, and then Babylon, and later Rome, and settles instead on Israel, a ragtag band of outcast slaves. Now, not all scholars are united on this, but there is a good deal of historical evidence to suggest that the term Hebrew wasn't originally an ethnic designation, but was originally a class designation used to refer to a class of drifters and outcasts on the outskirts of the ancient Near Eastern world. And it is to these drifters and outcasts that God says, chosen, mine. And it is through these drifters and outcasts that God plans to then make his appeal to the whole world. And as the biblical story unfolds, God is stubborn in that subversive strategy. He seeks out the enslaved, the uneducated, the marginalized, and the overlooked as his primary messengers. Chapter 2, Sadaka. So as Old Testament history unfolds, God begins to reveal his character, and there are two primary descriptors of Yahweh that are always paired together, righteousness and justice. Righteousness, God is revealing himself to be holy in his presence and trustworthy in his person and in every way honorable, and justice. God is concerned about the systemic imbalances in the world, and he's preferentially active toward those who are victimized by those systems. He is near to the growl of the hungry belly, and to the parched throat of the thirsty, and to the shivering body of the naked. God is inwardly righteous and outwardly justice. This is how he reveals himself. That's how we understand it in English, at least. But in the original Hebrews, something is revealed that is lost in our English translation, and that is that the biblical term for personal righteousness is Sadaka, and the biblical Hebrew term for outward justice is Sadaka. Now, you've heard me say this before. I'm going to keep on saying it because I'm not trying to give you novel content to keep you entertained. I'm trying to get us formed so that the story isn't just something we understand, but it's a story that we live. And this is so crucial that the historic biblical understanding of devotion to God was to be righteous is to care for the poor. And to care for the poor is to be righteous. That is how central mercy toward the needy was to the historic people of God. Jesus would say to the priests in his own day, you've obsessed over the small things, but you've forgotten the weightier matters. In his words exactly, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. 
You see, in the Jewish law, there was all sorts of rules about what you could and could not eat for ceremonial cleanliness. And according to Leviticus 11, flying insects like gnats were off limits. And then that very same biblical chapter goes on to say that eating the meat of a camel also makes you ceremonially unclean. So according to the Hebrew law, gnats are the smallest thing that can make you unclean, and camels are the largest thing that can make you unclean. Jesus is a Bible nerd delivering a scorching burn to fellow Bible nerds in a language they are fluent in, saying, by emphasizing the smallest things, you've swallowed the biggest things. By straining out a gnat, you've swallowed a camel. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So Jesus, not me, Jesus says justice, mercy, and faithfulness are more important. It is possible to so fill your life with Christian minutiae that you miss the more important matters. Now, Jesus does not say that private personal spirituality is unimportant. Jesus says do both, the latter and the former. How you spend your money matters. Your unseen thoughts matter. That gossipy story that you can't resist telling matters. And your proximity or lack thereof to your neediest neighbors matters. Sadaka. To be righteous is to care for the poor, and to care for the poor is to be righteous. Now this brings us to chapter 3, prophets. If you would now turn ahead to Amos chapter 2, that's going to be somewhere near right the middle of your Bibles. Now we could be here all day, because the Old Testament prophets have so much to say about the inseparable nature of personal righteousness and social justice. So for the sake of brevity, we're going to spend our time with Amos, a prophet that I enjoy so much, I named my son after him. So, Amos chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Now, I'm reading this somewhat jarring bit of scripture to you to show you that in the same breath, uh, God, Israel is rebuked by God for neglecting the poor and for sexual perversion. God is holding the two in the same category. And that's not an anomaly. This exact same thing is repeated in Isaiah chapter 10 and in Ezekiel chapter 16. You see, the issue isn't personal morality, and the issue also isn't social justice. The issue is sadaka. It is that personal righteousness and social justice are bound together as one. Biblically, there is no separating the two, but the people of God have never quite lost an appetite for pushing apart what he has joined together. And in Amos, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, Israel is, con is not condemned for oppressing the poor. They are condemned for their passivity to the plight of the poor. You see, in the 8th century BC, when Amos lived and spoke, uh, the nation of Israel was experiencing the greatest period of prosperity since King Solomon's heyday, the economy was up, the market was on fire, there was a way that you could drum up a pretty good life for yourself. 
Two centuries prior to this, God had divided up the promised land equally among the 12 tribes. But then by the time Amos was on the scene, that promised land that was once divided equally had become a place where there was parts of towns uh, where you could have large homes surrounded by other elites. And there were other parts of town uh, that were mostly for the poor, where modest homes were cloistered tightly together. Uh, among the ruins of Amos's Israel, modern archaeologists have discovered the high-rises and housing projects of ancient Israel. And it was at precisely this moment in history, in history that Amos offered his stinging rebuke. You see, it's not that the rich are actively oppressing the poor. It's that the well-off are pouring into the temple for Sabbath worship, but never into the slums to feed the hungry. And there's a disconnect there named Sadaka. It's not a sin of activity. It's a sin of passivity. It's not oppression. It's just a failure to assist. It is turning a blind eye to the burden of the needy in the midst of my own comfort and lack of need. And it's important to note that Israel, or I'm sorry, that Amos was not offering this rebuke to the city. He was speaking to the church here. He's not calling the government to do something about the plight. He's talking to the people of God. Because in Old Testament spirituality, a devout life of following God was summarized in three core practices, in fasting, prayer, and almsgiving, which did involve uh, financial giving, but was a much more broad term, similar to how we use the word social justice today. So private spirituality is expressed by prayer and fasting, and public spirituality is expressed by justice. Now take that understanding with you back to Amos chapter 5. I'm going to give Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message, because I personally find it punchiest. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. Have had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice. Oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want, says Yahweh to his people. Because the people of Israel are fasting. They're devoted to God. They're fine-tuning the appetites of their lives to the heavenly banquet that will come and outlast all the others. And they're people of prayer. I mean, they are bowing their heads. They are giving thanks. They are raising their hands in worship and praise to God together in the temple. But justice is nowhere to be found. A spirituality of three practices was reduced only to two. The temple had drifted into this mode of being where they wore the right clothes and attended the right services and even carried out the right personal disciplines and practices, but the society within the temple had become indistinguishable from the society outside. The people of God were chopped up by the very same dividing lines that are invisible but had come to very much divide their city. Ethnic divisions, socioeconomic divisions, opportunity divisions, status divisions, the same gaps that divided their city now divided them. In the words of the Indian novelist Arundhati Roy, there really, there's really no such thing as the voiceless. There are only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. See, Amos is saying something like that. You have compartmentalized spirituality to an inner state of being, but you're not letting it touch your outer life. 
It's not getting to the sidewalks where your feet walk around or the plot of land where you build your home or your habits of consumption or the friend group that surrounds your Saturdays. In Amos's day, the well-off had slowly turned the promised land into class enclaves, into uppity, uppity neighborhoods and ghettos. And that may have lowered the volume on the cry of the oppressed in the ear of the privileged elite who built their homes in the finest parts of town. It it had distanced the well-off from the needy, just like it does today, but that only raised the volume of the cry of the oppressed in the ear of God. So much so that Amos prophesies an exile coming for Israel because they had forgotten the poor amidst their own prosperity. And it was not that the rich oppressed the poor. It was simply that they ordered their lives in such a way that lowered the volume of the cry of the poor in their ears. But that only raised it in God's ear. When God leans in to listen to Portland, what does he hear? And are you close enough to hear it too? You see, in the exile that Amos foretold, God raised up another prophet named Isaiah, and his voice sounds eerily familiar all throughout the prophecies of Isaiah, but most profoundly in chapter 58, the nation of Israel is called out for praying and fasting, but forgetting the poor all around them. A spirituality of three practices reduced only to two. It's the same drum, just a new hand beating it. The prophetic message isn't just that God cares about both personal righteousness and social justice, so you should care about both too. It's that righteousness and justice are the same tree. One is the root and the other is the fruit, but you can't break them apart from one another. The hunger crisis that's experienced by a large percentage of the world is inseparable from the few nations of the world consuming the vast majority of the world's food and resources. Uh, The global human trafficking crisis is inseparable from the $12 billion pornography industry. Uh, The unjust labor practices of the fashion industry is inseparable from the overstuffed closets of most Americans. You see, the fruit might be global hunger, that's justice, but the root is gluttony, righteousness. The the fruit might be human trafficking, that's justice, but the root is lust, righteousness. And the fruit might be unjust labor, justice, but the root is materialism, righteousness. Fruit or root, we're talking about the same tree. You see, spiritual formation and social justice are interconnected. All of our spiritual formation and our practices are ultimately that the kingdom might come on the streets of our city. So how do you measure how you're doing in your faith? Maybe by the consistency of your Bible reading or of your prayer life, perhaps by the quality of your recent moral decisions or the sense of inner peace or lack thereof that you carry around. We are radical individualists in the most radically individual society that the world has ever seen. So almost certainly we have adopted some unspoken metric like that. But many sum up the prophetic message as the quality of your faith will be judged by the quality of justice in the land. And the quality of justice in the land will be judged by how the weakest and most vulnerable groups in society fare while you and I are alive. You see, the claim of the prophets is that our standing doesn't only rest on private personal spirituality, but on how we stand with the marginalized. And then how do you measure the health of a church? a community of Jesus' disciples. 
Well, according to the biblical prophets, it's by how their most underprivileged neighbors are doing. So if that's the metric, how healthy is Bridgetown Church? This story is building to a coming savior who will bring Sadaka, a kingdom that is ruled by righteousness and justice. The kingdom of God is freedom from anxiety and healing for my body and a peace that surpasses understanding and salvation for the lost. And the kingdom of God is a home for the orphan and the oppressed set free and the poor dignified and the down and out given a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh chance. And when God came and lived among us, he did not soften the prophetic message, he amplified it. In the Old Testament, one out of every 10 verses deals directly with how the people of God are to care for the poor. In Luke's gospel, that jumps up to one out of every six. And Jesus didn't merely say that God stands with the poor. He made the claim that God is in the poor, that how we treat the poor is how we treat God. So turn ahead in your Bibles to Luke chapter four. We have finally made it to our teaching text. How are you doing? I did tell you that it wouldn't be sexy. Chapter four, Jesus. So God is the author of the story, and that means that he could have written himself in at any point in the story as any character that he wanted to. So what does it tell us about God, that he freely came as a member of an oppressed peasant class, during, uh, as the member of a minority during a genocide at the height of Roman occupation? That he freely chose for his own life, oppression, powerlessness, poverty, and the inability to choose a way out. That God showed up as the poorest of the poor. 2 Corinthians 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. You see, in other words, Jesus came to restore what had been separated, righteousness and justice, but he did not come in power. Jesus confronts the perpetrator by becoming the victim. It is the most merciful type of confrontation, the most redemptive sort of justice. He is the Prince of Peace who has come as a child and the government will be on his shoulder, says Isaiah 9. So Jesus is a king who has come to establish a new government, one that will be ruled by righteousness and justice as its very foundation. And when Jesus began his ministry, he did so by reading from the scroll of Isaiah as in, in a Nazarene synagogue when he was 30 years old. This is Luke 4. I'm going to start in verse 16. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the poor are the only people group singled out by Jesus when he describes his mission. And Jesus is, is saying that this good news he's bringing, it's for everyone. But Jesus equally does seem particularly concerned that the poor know that this good news is for them. Now, some try to nuance this away by spiritualizing it. Like what Jesus is saying here is he's come to open the eyes of the spiritually blind and, and to set free the spiritually oppressed and to proclaim good news to the spiritually impoverished. And that sort of interpretation, it really does work at other points in the gospel, sometimes the things Jesus says. This just isn't one of the places where it works. 
Because Jesus isn't here rattling something off the cuff. He is quoting Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 61, what Jesus is reading from, this very prophecy is unmistakably about the materially disadvantaged, the physically blind, and the actually imprisoned. And later, a very similar list is given in Luke chapter 7, which is equally clear in reference to poverty and oppression. In Matthew 9, on another occasion, Jesus quotes another prophet. This time it's Hosea. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now the Greek elios, which is here translated as mercy, can equally be translated as compassion. It's the same word, and it means to feel mercy from the bowels of your being. It's a sort of mercy that comes from the gut, not just the head. Uh, it comes from entering into the suffering of another, feeling it myself, and then letting a response well up in me from a place of empathy. Martin Luther King Jr. said, our missionary efforts fail when they are based on pity rather than compassion. You see, pity is a feeling that is disconnected from relationship. Pity is the awakening of human emotion apart from human proximity to human relationship. Jesus and his kingdom are fueled by mercy and not by pity. Jesus does not read sad articles, reflect on sad statistics, or watch sad news reports. Jesus immerses himself in relationship to those who are victimized by those sad statistics, articles, or news reports. The most stunning revelation, though, it wasn't how Jesus arrived, it wasn't what he taught, it wasn't even how he lived, it was how he suffered. Because the cross means something about who Jesus is. His eulogy is recorded later in Philippians 2. Suffering servant. He was always that. God stripped himself of privilege and power and came as a man in his life. Even when kings and rulers invited him for dinner, he always seemed to prefer street meat with the bottom rung. In his death, he was executed like a common criminal right alongside common criminals. The cross did not tell us anything that Jesus had not been telling us every day of his 33-year life. All that the cross did was punctuated what he had been saying. It just made explicit what had been implicit day after day after day. Here is God, suffering servant. And the cross means something about where Jesus is found because he said himself in Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And the opposite is equally true. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did not do for me. You see, Jesus is saying, how we treat the poor is how we treat God. And Jesus isn't teaching something new here. He's borrowing familiar sheep and goats imagery and blessing and cursing language to connect his teaching in Matthew 25 all the way back with the book of Genesis, the beginning of the story. Jesus is just dragging a theme that's been true on every page onto this one. 
Jesus is saying what God's always been saying. Here's where you'll find me. In the eyes of the poor and needy, in the company of the hurting, in the care of the handicapped, at the table of the hungry. Could it be that our most profound encounters with God are waiting behind ordinary faces? In Matthew 25, Jesus very directly says, how you relate to the marginalized is how you relate to God. That if you avoid the cries of the oppressed, ignore the needs of the poor, dismiss the story that doesn't fit your worldview, check that box and then get back to your thing. The stakes are this high. That is me. You're avoiding, ignoring, dismissing, forgetting. And that's not all. Jesus is also saying the company of the marginalized is the place of encounter with God. He is saying to enter into the company of the systemically oppressed, mistreated, or forgotten is to walk right into the holy of holies. It is to come into my presence and make yourself available to my encounter. He's picking up from this long tradition that's been handed him by the prophets. Your worship and sacrifices are hollow if your life is insulated from your neediest neighbors. So I will say this again in scripture. God promises his presence to us in two places. Wherever two or three are gathered, that's Matthew 18. And in the poor, that's Matthew 25. And there is no version of following Jesus that does not regularly take me into both environments. So is your relationship to Jesus increasingly bringing you into greater proximity with the greatest needs that exist in our city? And if not, I just want to gently and humbly ask, are you sure that's Jesus you're following? See, when you behold the person of Jesus, when you really see him, the only response is worship. But when we imagine worship, I think so often we think of like chanting his name and listing his accomplishments as if what God wants is a bunch of people that that cheer him on and applaud him and ask for his autograph. But the greatest form of worship isn't applause, it's imitation. Jesus is less interested in hearing his name chanted and more interested in you and me living like him here in this world. He's less interested in us applauding and more interested in us living in this world like we belong to another one, like sharing, like there's more blessing in giving than hoarding and working for justice until it's all there is left and to give ourselves to others as completely as he's given himself to us. How do you respond to a savior this extravagant? Only one way, by worship. And that means imitation. And that is exactly what the early church did. So chapter 5, church, turn a little bit further ahead in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, and that is where we're going to land today. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, where the early church took root, women were powerless and are described as possessions on the legal documents of the Roman Empire. You see, Jesus spent so much of his time with prostitutes because prostitution was so common in the Roman Empire. It was legalized and accepted as normal. Sex slavery, or what we often refer to as sex trafficking today, was just the norm. The early Christian church was the first community in human history to call that injustice by its name and advocate for systemic change. In fact, the historian Kyle Harper concludes that you can trace the spread of the early church through the Roman Empire in the fifth century by tracing the legal ban of sexual slavery through the Roman Empire in the 5th century. Are you hearing that? 
Historically speaking, the most reliable index for the geographical spread of the early church is the geographical overturning of sexual violence against women. Do you know what that sounds like? It sounds like good news for the poor and freedom for the captive and sight for the blind and salvation for the lost. It sounds like the worship called imitation. If you were to fast forward just one generation after Jesus, in AD 70, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed by an enemy nation. Israel now has no place to gather for formal worship. A spirituality built around coming together in a building now has no building. And so during that period, the rabbis had to reinvent a pathway for righteousness. And they replaced the whole sacrificial system with caring for the poor as a way to make oneself right before God. So instead of bringing your best livestock to the temple so that it could be offered sacrificially on the altar, it was bring the best of your harvest to your needy neighbor to help get them through the winter. That's how you make yourself right before God. That's how central mercy was to the historic Hebraic understanding of walking with Jesus. Hospitals are not the invention of doctors, they're the invention of Christians. And orphanages and the foster care system are terms we know today because it's how the early church began to live. Public school was uh, offered by the church long before the government caught on. Nursing homes were the common charity of the church before it was a for-profit industry in the city. And what we call soup kitchens today was originally called the love feast, and it was a weekly practice of the early believers. According to the writings of Aristides in AD 125, if the hungry came to the door of the church and the church had no food, to offer them, the entire community would go on a shared fast until they could scrounge up enough food that they could all feast together. That was the common practice of the church in the second century. And according to St. Ignatius, if caring for the poor and the oppressed and the hungry did not distinctly mark a local church, that church was guilty of heresy, of a distortion of the biblical story not a model of the biblical story. In a word, it's all tzedakah. To be righteous is to care for the poor, and to care for the poor is to be righteous, personal righteousness and outward justice joined together as one, inseparable from one another. And it's so tempting, especially for people like me, to romanticize the past. So you've got to know that what we're talking about here was far from a perfect church. I mean, on the pages of Scripture, the Apostle Paul was horrified by the class divisions that he saw in Corinth. When we look back, we do not see a perfect church. What we do see, though, is a repentant church. And that brings us to Galatians 2. I'm going to read from verse 10. Paul writes to the church with these simple instructions. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing we had been eager to do all along. So remember, that is the second most frequent command on the pages of Scripture. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And if you do a deep dive and you trace this word remember from Galatians all the way back through the story of Scripture, you'll arrive at Exodus 13, the original command to remember Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. You see, every time you and I read remember on the pages of Scripture, the Hebrew imagination runs back to, I was poor, I was weak, I was a slave, I was a houseless refugee, and God rescued me. Remember the poor, meaning remember that while you were poor, that while you were a slave to someone or something else, 
that while you were buried underneath uh, an impoverished spirit and mind, that while you were wandering without a family and without hope, God welcomed you in as his very own, gave you more than you could ever drum up for yourself, and mercifully called you family. Remember God. And as you do, you will find the proper love to live like Jesus here in this world. Not a perfect church. We cannot be that. A repentant church. That is all God needs to work with. See, what I'm trying to show you this morning is the unavoidable imperative of proximity. When Dorothy Day was asked, how do you live the gospel? She simply said, stay close to the poor. More recently, Rich Velotas says, practicing justice becomes a possibility when we are present to God and in close proximity to the vulnerable among us. Proximity to the poor, it's not an optional expression of the gospel for a subset of Christians with a particular social leaning. It is an essential priority of Jesus that tumbles forth from the heart of God and always has. But as time went on and the church became more institutionalized, the potency of those early years was watered down, and this radical commitment to justice was one of the first things to go. The upper middle class folks who joined the peasant movement had a remarkable ability to emphasize certain parts of the biblical story while almost entirely overlooking others. That's a remarkable ability that we've maintained with a few revolutionary exceptions to this very day. The sadaka that Jesus restored was once again separated. A version of discipleship to Jesus that keeps you within your comfort zone, your class, your culture, your preferences is a modern invention, a diluted version of the real thing and something that you will not find on the pages of Scripture. If Jesus can only disciple you within your comfort zone, friends, Jesus can't disciple you. What if the greatest threat to the kingdom of God in your life is not some egregious sin pattern, but a passive one. It is not your failure, it is your comfort. It is the safe walls that you have built to hold your comfortable spirituality. What if the kingdom comes not within the invisible walls that I've grown comfortable and safe within, but beyond them? In the sixth century, the, the Celtic church made it their personal mission to end slavery in their region. So they just took whatever resources they had and as local congregations began to pool resources together and buy a slave's freedom, just one individual at a time. Many of those freed slaves that were ransomed by the church then became the priesthood that would later lead the Celtic revival. The first theological college in England was primarily made up of freed slaves. I am absolutely convinced that God is longing to breathe renewal into his church here in Portland. I'm convinced, and I even see the early rumblings of it. But I'm equally convinced of this, that if that were to happen, it would not be led by me, that it would be led by people who are currently behind bars, or you don't have a fridge full of food to pull from this morning, or seem to be the least likely candidates to lead a move of God like that, because I'm convinced that God still writes the same kind of stories now that he wrote then. The power of the Spirit, family, it's not for the entertainment of the saints. It's for the renewal of the city. 
So our practice this week is not something new. It's something you've heard before. Prayer hubs and community mission. See, on the pages of Scripture, this pattern emerges, that justice grows in the heart, then it comes alive in the church, and then it gets into the city. When we talk about justice these days, almost everyone wants to jump to the activity on the streets of the city, and that's important. It's just out of order. You see, prayer is the place where God breaks our hearts for what breaks his. It's where we breathe in, that we might have something to breathe out, remember? So get yourself to a prayer hub. That was much more accusatory than I meant for it to sound. I'm just trying to keep things a little bit light. It was feeling intense in here. It's my birthday. And I didn't intend to have that intense of a celebration. So... Look, there's just two weeks left. We'd love for you to join us at one of our prayer ups and put your feet right on a place of pain in our city and transform it into an altar of prayer. And then community is the place where we both encounter God, where two or three gather around a table, and in the eyes of the poor, marginalized, and oppressed of our city. We can't have one without the other, so we've joined them together at the central place of discipleship here in our church, and we've made it our endeavor for mission to be a part of our monthly community rhythm and every last one of our Bridgetown communities scattered throughout the city. All that starts this month, and all the info is up right now at bridgetown.church justice. And when justice begins in our hearts and comes alive, in our church, then we're going to start seeing the kingdom come on the streets of our city so that the stories we're telling in this place come from outside this place into this place rather than coming from within this place and staying in this place. Do you see what I'm saying? So I got to know Sarah, that NYU college student who moved to the big city with a Broadway dream. And and then she invited me over for dinner. And by now she was living in the South Bronx, the poorest zip code in the U.S., And all that started with reading the Gospels and daring to take Jesus seriously, seriously enough to actually follow him. And then there were those lunches among the houseless in the West Village, and then she got to thinking, you know, Jesus is always ministering to prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. What are the modern-day equivalents to those people groups? And she did a bit of sociological research, and what she came up with uh, were prostitutes, drug dealers, and criminals. And then she did more sociological research, and she found where's the part of New York City with the greatest population density of those very people? And then she moved there. And all of a sudden, the girl with a Broadway dream was showing up to class at NYU from a very different New York City. Don't you know how dangerous that is? Don't you know what might happen to you? There's other ways to care for the poor. Why? Jesus. That's why. Jesus. So I showed up for this weekly family dinner that she hosted every Monday night, and we passed uh, cheap wine bottles and dishes around the table, that, a table that was so crowded I had to hold my plate in my lap. And I met that evening a grandmother who had lived on that block her entire life since her family immigrated there from Guatemala, and a pregnant teenager who was trying to figure out how to finish high school while raising a newborn. And I met a formerly incarcerated young man who was about my age, who was trying to figure out how to piece together an ordinary life when he had never known anything like that before. And I met a single mother who spoke no English but brought her kids there every Monday night because it was the one place that they got a full meal every week. And at the end of the night, I was fighting tears while I helped clear the table because here it was the table of Jesus, the one that he stood over, breaking bread and pouring wine with his disciples and said, remember me, the one that Paul fought for in Corinth. And we did. 
It was impossible not to remember Jesus that Monday night sitting around that table. And a decade later, Sarah was still living on that same block among all those same neighbors. She had moved a couple doors down because the apartment that we were in that night had become the offices for a house on Beekman, a nonprofit that she had founded that uh, companioned individuals from birth all the way to high school graduation with unheard of success to this very day. An 18-year-old girl moved to New York City with a Broadway dream and stayed in New York City for a kingdom dream, all because she had the courage to look hard into the face of Jesus, to listen to his ancient invitation, follow me, and then to have the audacity to say, Yes, where and to whom? So I want to close today just by naming clearly the temptation that I believe that we as a church face in the days ahead, and it's this, success by a standard other than Jesus. It is that we as Bridgetown Church, however subtly and well-intentioned, would invent a version of discipleship that is successful in the eyes of the broader culture, maybe successful in the eyes of the broader church, but it avoids Jesus' inescapable call to proximity. And this is not a rebuke, my friends. This is an invitation. Every single week, before I jot down a single word that I might share with you, I pray a simple prayer. I say, Jesus, what do you want to say to your people. And just what I heard him speaking over us this week was, you're missing out. You're missing out. Because there's parts of me that you don't know that I want to introduce you to, but it's beyond the walls of your comfort zone. And of course, it's going to feel awkward and uncomfortable at first, just like it felt awkward and uncomfortable the first time you clasped your hands in prayer or cracked open the Bible without an idea where to start or raised your hands wondering if you were going completely nuts or, or approached that one other person to confess something that was inside of you that you had never laid before anyone else before. It always feels awkward and uncomfortable and a bit forced with me at, for, at first, but then it always becomes a place of encounter that you have a sacred place of encounter in the end that you return to again and again and again. So will you meet me in the eyes of the poor and the company of the marginalized? Will you let it feel awkward and forced and uncomfortable at first that it might become a sacred place of encounter in the end? There's so much of me I want to show you and it's all treasure. Will you follow me?